Welcome back to season two of Wildcats Podcast with Wildcats Conservation Alliance. I'm Amy Van Gelder and in this season we'll be discussing tigers and emu leopards with experts working to save these iconic species. Each episode we touch upon a different subject concerning the conservation of these majestic yet increasingly vulnerable large carnivores who still roam Asia's remaining wild spaces. In this episode, we'll be discussing what historical records of Amur leopards in Seoul in Korea at the end of the 19th century can tell us about the future of large carnivores in major urban centres with a high human population density. Our guest today is PhD researcher Joshua Powell, whose research investigates opportunities and challenges for the transboundary conservation of the endangered Amur tiger, leopard and other large carnivores in Northeast Asia. Joshua is a visiting researcher with the Tiger and Leopard Conservation Fund in Korea and has been a visiting research student in the College of Veterinary Medicine at Seoul National University. He's a National Geographic explorer and one of the faces of WWF's Voices campaign on global biodiversity. In this episode, we'll be focusing on his paper on the historical context for urban leopards in the early Anthropocene from Seoul, Korea. His paper explored the socio-cultural, political and ecological factors that may have facilitated human leopard co-occurrence in an urban landscape and the factors that eventually led to the leopard's extirpation. It seems a little counterintuitive for a large carnivore that needs large home ranges and large prey to choose to call a bustling kind of concrete jungle home. What large carnivores do this? Well, it's actually quite common, uh, surprisingly common. Uh, there's a across a range of different continents and, and different species, you get large carnivores occurring in urban or, or semi-urban environments. I think the most famous one is probably the mountain lions in Los Angeles in the US, because obviously that's uh, one of the world's largest cities. And sometimes for large carnivores to occur in these urban or, or semi-urban environments, sometimes it's that they don't have a choice. It's the result of, of human expansion. Uh, so simply the process of urbanization, city areas expanding and, and swallowing up areas of natural habitat. But also it's quite a valuable food resource as well. I mean, a good example there would be from the small carnivores, animals like urban foxes in the UK or, or raccoon dogs in Seoul. And what this means overall is that you've got, as I say, a, a fairly large number of large carnivores that do call urban environments home. Mountain lions in the US, urban coyotes in the US, um, American black bears. So that's three species just from America alone. But leopards are a really interesting example of this because leopards have quite a wide ranging diet and they're quite flexible in terms of their behavior. And these two things together mean that leopards can access different food resources in urban landscapes. And a good example of that is stray dogs, uh, which often occur in high densities in, in urban environments. And leopards can access those as a food resource, which allows them to survive there. So to focus on leopard populations then, where are they currently persisting? What cities? Uh, Mumbai in India is probably the most famous. uh, And it is certainly the most well-studied population. But they also currently occur in Johannesburg and Nairobi. So three different cities across two different continents. And they might actually be more widespread than that. Leopards are notoriously difficult to detect even when they're living in the same environment as us, they're incredibly elusive. Um, But those are just the major cities that we know where where leopards occur today. So what type of factors facilitate human leopard coexistence in the hostility of an urban environment? There are a couple of things that are key. I mean, we've already mentioned that the leopard's wide ranging diet and its flexibility in terms of its 
behavioral choices and, and dietary choices. So, so that's really key. And having that presence of alternative food supplies that lepers can prey on. So in the case of Seoul in the 19th century, there was a stray dog population. And actually contemporary accounts at the time theorized that the leopards were preying on those dogs, very similar to leopards in Mumbai prey on uh, the stray dog population in the city there. But that wasn't the only food resource. So there were domestic pigs um, down on this narrow network of streets that formed Seoul at the time. And one of the major palaces, Kyonbokon Palace, is known to have had a tame deer population within its grounds at, at this time. And there are a couple of records of leopards directly in Kyonbokon Palace or sightings of tracks and signs of, of leopards. But the other part is, is also the presence of, of vegetation patches, essentially somewhere that leopards could shelter during the day. So using Mumbai as an example, again, Mumbai is really interesting because it has a large national park inside the city. As the city's expanded, it's essentially enclosed the area where the national park is. So that's a, a really good example where the leopards have vegetation to, to hide in during the day. That wasn't the case for Seoul in the 19th century. It's a much smaller city at the time. But there were these abandoned royal palaces that had occurred in the cities. One of them had been damaged in the war with the Japanese in the 16th century in the Imjin Wars, and it hadn't been rebuilt in that time. So you've got a, a fairly large area of natural vegetation um, that's quite secluded and, and is private. And the other thing, of course, is that you've got to have an absence of unsustainable persecution of leopards. And I think that's one of the things that all of these examples show is that if that level of persecution goes up, those small leopard populations can very quickly be wiped out. Yeah, so I think this is what was most interesting about the paper was that you showcased that the thinking of leopards in urban spaces is just like a 21st century phenomenon, whereas it has historically occurred. So it's not just because human populations have expanded so rapidly in the 21st century. Do you know when the last record of the leopards in Seoul was? I mean, the, the last record is right at the end of the 19th century. Uh, so it's 1898. I think it's the last confirmed record we have. We have records of, of big cats in the wider Seoul area, uh, the area that is, is now modern day Seoul because the city's grown so much in the 20th and 21st centuries uh, that go up until uh, the early 1900s. But actually within Seoul itself, the last record is 1898. And as you say, I, I think one of the main takeaways here is that we tend to think of urban leopards as a, a kind of very contemporary phenomenon. But it might actually have a much, much longer history, perhaps even longer than than we realize in this example, because, of course, it's predicated on the ability to detect that leopards are there. I've said they're, they're quite elusive. Sometimes we don't even know if there are leopards uh, around in an environment where we're living. But also it's based on those historical records existing. And we were very lucky in the case of Seoul that there are good historical records, both Korean records but also records of, of very early Western travellers because uh, the country had just opened up to foreign visitors. And so you've got people who are going and are writing about what they see. And one of the things that comes up is these accounts of urban leopards. But you said that obviously these are kind of historic accounts, but is there any knowledge of Amur leopards still existing within Korea? Um, so perhaps not in the South, but obviously the North shares a border with both China and Russia, which do have these transboundary populations of around 100 Amur leopards. So is there any knowledge? Obviously, it's such a difficult environment to study in North Korea, but is there any knowledge about this? Yes, yeah, a really good question. Um, obviously, the Korean Peninsula used to be united 
as a single country. And since independence, after the Second World War, the, the country is now split into two. I mean, first of all, I deal with South Korea, and a lot of people are surprised that Armour Leopard survived in South Korea until 1970. That's very, very recent. And they survived in the area which is now Jirisan National Park. It's South Korea's oldest national park. It's one of its most important and it's the site that's been targeted for a recovery program for Asiatic black bear, which is one of, of South Korea's other large carnivores. So leopards managed to cling on in South Korea until really quite recent, 1970, even though they, the last record of them in, in Seoul is back at the end of the 19th century. I mean, as you point out, like, the situation in North Korea is incredibly difficult uh, in terms of a place to conduct scientific research and to work out whether leopards do still persist there. Some of the work in my PhD is, is aiming to do that. As you say, there's been leopard recovery on the Chinese side of the border, and North Korea shares a border with both Russia and China. So it would certainly be really interesting to try and get an indication of whether that same recovery was happening on the other side of those mountains that divide North Korea and China. But at the moment, we, we simply don't know. But hopefully we will find out more in the years to come. So you said that Amur leopards kind of persisted in Korea until the 1970s, which yeah. is obviously like really surprising because it's so recent, as you as you said. What happened to them and also the Amur tigers that were in Korea as well? So the leopards were probably already extremely rare by the second half of the, the 20th century. And there's a combination of, of different things that are going on there. So there had been historical persecution of leopards and tigers. But both big cats were targeted uh, during the colonial period. So Korea is a Japanese colonial possession in the first half of the 20th century. And one of the things that's implemented is a, a widespread uh, extermination program for what are seen as harmful animals, um, particularly large carnivores. And large numbers of bears, tigers and leopards are killed during that time period. Now, the leopard gets through that. It also manages to persist through the Korean War which happened in the 19, early 1950s, so shortly after independence. And that caused tremendous damage to forest environments on the Korean peninsula. Um, I mean, a, a fairly high percentage, we certainly know from South Korea, of South Korea's forests were um, destroyed or badly damaged during this time period. As I say, the, the leopard population manages to cling on to Jirisan, which is a particularly wild, a mountainous area. It's right in the far south of the peninsula, which is quite surprising. Right? We would think of, of leopards surviving as far north as possible, as close to China and Russia as possible. But it's, this is right down in the Bosman Peninsula. And unfortunately, the last few individuals uh, were killed by hunters. And we've got quite good records of that because it was all recorded in the newspapers of the time. Um, one of the leopards ended up being held in a church and uh, most of the animals uh, ended up being sold for traditional medicine. And that's something we don't actually know a lot about at the moment the use of of leopards in traditional medicine in Korea it's often an, an overlooked country in this regard but that was that was the end of, of the last leopards as I say in 1970 the tigers went much earlier so uh, tigers it's thought uh, were wiped out in the area that's now South Korea in 1924 so again the population was likely severely reduced by that point anyway but the combination of this control program for large carnivals and widespread trophy hunting by Japanese, usually businessmen in Korea. So people would go out and go go tiger hunting in Korea. They would often take large parties and they'd have uh, tiger tasting sessions afterwards where you could try tiger meat. And there was even an effort by a, a nationalist a Japanese newspaper at the time to try and get Teddy Roosevelt, the US president, over to Korea to, to go tiger hunting. There's, there's no indication at all that Teddy Roosevelt even showed any interest in this whatsoever. 
Um, but there was certainly a very conscious effort to try and, and get him to do so. And there's quite heavy political overtones to that as well, obviously. Um, and the last tigers in what is now South Korea were, as I say, killed in 1924 um, by trophy hunters, as far as we're aware. I guess the next question is, um, with such kind of a retrospective look on um, tigers and, and specifically leopards in Korea, why is it important that we better understand the kind of socio-ecology of large carnivores in urban landscapes in the past? I mean, I think first and foremost, uh, there's kind of a lesson here about environmental history and that um, particularly for big cats. And, and this is really a kind of a cautionary tale that illustrates this relationship between humans and big cats is very fragile and it can change very rapidly. A lot of the things we've discussed that potentially led to the loss of, of big cats in, in the Seoul area and actually from South Korea as a whole were driven by factors that were quite unrelated to ecology or, or wildlife conservation. They were economic or they were political, kind of wide changes that were happening to the wider economy and society of Korea at the time. And this is something that we need to be more cautious of in terms of 21st century conservation. We need to be alert to potential economic or political changes that could have quite serious ramifications for big cat conservation. But secondly, it can also help inform our understanding of the conditions that we require for large carnivore persistence today. And that's that big cats can survive in these human dominated landscapes. It's not always a case of needing uh, to protect these species in wilderness areas, because of course, wilderness areas around the world are, are shrinking and shrinking rapidly. So there are a lot of lessons here that we can take forward for conservation of, of big cats in these human dominated or even urban landscapes. And a, a great example of that is Mumbai's leopards today. Yeah, it just shows that we don't necessarily always need, as you were saying, these kind of protected areas or like islands of habitats um, that humans are kind of excluded from if we can learn to live alongside big carnivores. So what about the future of um, Amur leopard and tiger conservation in the Korean peninsula? I mean, as I say, the, the, one of the first big questions is, is what the situation is in, in North Korea, which we don't know at the moment, and are trying to find out and how that might change over time. But there was a, an event at the National Assembly of the Republic of Korea. So that's the South Korean Parliament uh, last year in 2022. And it was the, the first event really looking at the potential that Korea could play for leopard conservation. And that's incredibly encouraging that policymakers are beginning to think about what role Korea could play in this area. I mean, in South Korea itself, habitat availability is actually fairly good because the country is so mountainous that even though it's fairly small, human development is concentrated in very specific parts of the country. And Korea also, South Korea that is, has a very successful uh, afforestation program. So I mentioned that the forests were kind of badly damaged after the Korean War. And there's been a really successful state effort to replant large areas of the country. So habitat availability at the moment is actually surprisingly good, despite the small size of the country. But it is declining with urbanization and kind of increasing construction and development. But you've got the other side of the coin, which is social acceptability. And there's really been very little work done in, in South Korea to assess what do communities feel about the potential of living alongside large carnivals again. As I mentioned, there's an Asiatic black bear restoration program that's been very successful and it's managed to build fairly good public support. 
um, mainly by targeting relatively modest aims, such as the return of bears to a very specific national park, not trying to aim for something bigger to start with, but just trying to aim for a fairly modest goal and working from there. That might be more challenging for wide ranging big cats like leopards, but there certainly needs to be a national conversation about are we prepared to live alongside these big cats again? A lot of hope is placed on the potential for leopards to expand into North Korea and potentially further down the Korean Peninsula. But as I say, that's quite an unknown at the moment, both whether those big cats are there, what the habitat availability is like and, and what the, the prey availability is like as well. Um, so there's a, a lot of questions going forwards into the 21st century. Also, I guess beyond the social acceptability, you kind of touched upon earlier about the use of leopards in traditional medicine within Korea in the past. And I wonder if there's still, uh, is there still a market for that in Korea at all? Or can you see there ever potentially being a market if there is that reintroduction of that species? So there's quite a long history of big cat trade across the Korean peninsula. And we know that extends back at least until the 14th and 15th century. And in the 19th century, when the country began to open up, there was international trade that was occurring. Like, uh, British uh, trade reporters essentially were present at the ports and they were reporting that, that big cat skins were being exported at that point of time. So it has a long history. And in the late 20th century, so up until the early 1990s, South Korea was actually one of the world's largest importers, specifically of tiger bones rather than leopard. But South Korea joined CITES in 1993. North Korea never joined it. Uh, I think it's only two countries that aren't parties to CITES. But South Korea did join in 1993 and implemented a fairly widespread ban. One of the issues is, is that we don't know for certain what the impact of that was. We think it was successful, which would make South Korea one of the few countries in the world that have successfully implemented a widespread trade ban but there needs to be more work done to assess that it's not a common area of, of research in South Korea and there needs to be a lot more focus on um, what happened uh, to this trade after it shifted from from legal to them being as I say almost completely outlawed but potentially South Korea poses a lot of positive news really for uh, in regards to big cat trade and and lessons as well for other countries that we might hope to draw on huge thank you to josh there whose research shows that the existence of leopards in urban landscapes is not a new phenomenon but rather has occurred independently on multiple occasions throughout the anthropocene given the right conditions over the coming decades urban landscapes are likely to swell particularly in areas which are home to large carnivores such as leopards Historical investigations such as Josh's help us to better understand the mechanisms that have supported leopard coexistence with human populations in the past, plus providing important insights into the future persistence of these large carnivores in urban landscapes. And that brings this episode to a close. Thank you all for listening and look out for our next episode where I'll be joined by some more special guests. Please do subscribe so you don't miss an episode and leave a review for the show. Thanks for joining me.